Welcome to the Oxygen Mask Podcast. If you're here as a parent or caregiver, educator or grandparent, we are glad to have you listening. This podcast is geared for the autism parent, but we welcome and invite all who are drawn to be here with us. I'm Beth and I'm your host. The title of this podcast, The Oxygen Mask, is based on a metaphor. Just as you're instructed on an airplane to put on your own oxygen mask before helping others, we believe we need to practice helping ourselves as parents so we can best help our children. And at the beginning of every episode, we're gonna take that metaphor and turn it into a concrete practice. Pausing just a few times every day to quiet our busy minds and breathe into our bellies provides stress-reducing neurochemicals. With practice over time, we actually build pathways in our brain that help reduce our stress response. So even if you hit play on this podcast, ready to enter multitasking mode, please take a moment of pause for yourself. Close your eyes and bring your attention to your feet as they contact the surface beneath them, rooting you to this place, this moment. Roll your shoulders back and let them settle in a strong, relaxed posture. Take a belly breath in through your nose. Feel the sensation of air at the rims of your nostrils, curling through the back of your throat. Exhale slowly, noticing your chest fall and your belly soften. Draw another deep breath in. Envision cool air swirling up to your forehead, around and even inside your skull. Exhale, letting the cool air flow down the back of your neck, across and inside your shoulders and down your back. Bring your attention to your face as you take a final cleansing breath in. Notice your temples, eyebrows, and jaw. Whatever you find there, let it be. At the top of your in-breath, bend your elbows and softly place your hands on your hips. Exhale slowly, perhaps letting a smile curl the corners of your mouth. Hold this posture for a few seconds as you open your eyes. Again, welcome. We are so glad you're here. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Oxygen Mask Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Durker. Now this episode has been sitting for a few months. It was recorded in the springtime and I'm putting it out now in the fall. And, you know, while I can feel kind of discouraged or maybe critical about um, the pace, I just wanted to share sort of a big picture um, pride feeling in that my co-host and I, Jen, she recorded the podcast with me and welcomed our guest, Robin Rumsey, in this episode. Um, You know, we really stuck with it um, with this episode and did not give up even after life got majorly in the way. Um, During this uh, recording, I had COVID and you can hear that in my voice. And Jen had her daughter at home and it turned out to be some, some, issues and struggles at school that were the beginning of a medical, intense medical emergency that turned out um, quite complex that Jen is still working through with her daughter. So all that to say, like, life gets in the way, and let's try to be gentle and patient with ourselves and commend ourselves for sticking to our contributions, even if it takes some time. 
Um, one additional announcement before we dive into this conversation, um, Communities Engaging Autism is the home organization or the founding organization behind um, the Oxygen Mass podcast. Tara Gerardin and I um, created the podcast a couple of years ago um, under CEA's uh, umbrella of work. And CEA um, is in the process of closing as a nonprofit organization. Um, oh, just the funding context and COVID um, just did not allow the nonprofit to continue. So some of my work over the last couple of months has also been finding um, connections in other organizations, facilitating transfers of, of programs and um, content to other organizations. So um, check out www.ceaforautism.org. I'll put that in the show notes with a direct link to um, our, our Minnesota goodbye. Uh, I will be continuing the Oxygen Mask podcast. The board of directors has been um, generous enough to give me permission to just take it and continue having conversations and creating um, through this platform. So you'll still find the Oxygen Mass podcast um, on our website for another month or two, and then from there on any podcast hosting services. So that's what I had to share. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I am just so pleased today to have a friend join me in this creative work. Jen Ryder is going to co-host several episodes with me, including this one, and she parents a young woman with autism. She's passionate about creativity and the arts and is a strong advocate for all things sensory related and mindfulness related. So Jen, thank you for being with me today. Thanks, Beth. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Today, our guest, Dr. Robin Rumsey, pediatric neuropsychologist at the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain, or if you like a good acronym, MIDB, has been on the U of M faculty since 2005 <laughs> and doing autism assessments since her 2003 neuropsychology fellowship. It is her work with training others in assessment and care for children with ASD that introduced me to Robin. She was my LEND fellowship advisor. And Robin, we are so happy to welcome you to the podcast today. And addition to Robin, I have a special <laughs> guest with me in the background, my 15 year old daughter, Olivia, who is very intrigued by getting to meet new people and seeing new things that I am involved in. And she may have her own opinions to share in the background of this podcast. And as this is about the realities of parenting on the autism journey, I think she'll be a fun guest to have pop in and out. So thank you, Robin. Thank you, Jen. It's really nice to be here. And Beth, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm very honored. So Robin, um, I know you more through Jen than anything else, but I know that you see families for assessments and regular um, check-in appointments. Can you tell us a little bit more about your practice and your relationship that you develop with the families that you serve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I do assessments for autism spectrum disorder primarily, um, but as you mentioned, I also like to follow kids over time so that we can 
kind of see how they're growing and changing and hopefully thriving uh, and get kids and families connected with additional services as needed. It's a pretty vulnerable time in families' lives. Um, and especially with the initial diagnosis, there's so many questions and so many uncertainties. So um, pretty scary time, I think, for a lot of families. But it really is all about establishing a relationship. Um, so one of my favorite things is having the, you know, the pleasure of following kids over time, maintaining that relationship, um, helping to make some of those decisions as to how to best support the child. Um, you know, I mean, there's a handful of families who I've worked with for almost 20 years now. Uh, I saw a 22 year old young man uh, in clinic last week who I diagnosed it for. Uh, so it really is very nice to see that that growth and change over time as well. Robin, you are most definitely responding to parents in their most vulnerable moment, especially with that first assessment. And I know from my own journey and my own reaction of the fear and the nerves I had, I bet you see parents responding in a lot of their own unique ways to learning about what this means and how to navigate the early stages of parenting. Are there some patterns you see in how parents respond or how do you meet them where they are and help them along at this moment. Yeah, you know, there is no one kind of correct way or no one consistent way that I've seen families respond. Um, I mean, there's some families who are certain their child, you know, is autistic and, and it's this feeling of relief that they can finally move forward with, a, you know, interventions. I've had some families um, welcome their child to the club. They themselves are autistic and, you know, and, and it ends up being a, almost a celebration. I've had other families who are very sad and they need time to grieve before they can even just move forward with connecting with services. So sometimes those families will meet with a couple of times to kind of help them answer their questions, you know, and, and so they can, they can then be ready to, to, to move forward with, with some additional services. Um, there are some families who are really angry, you know, they don't agree with the diagnosis. Um, there's, there's a really wide range. As you say that, I remember feeling angry at the messenger <laughs> of yeah. some of the educational folks that we worked with. I mean, do you just recommend that they come back a little more frequently or check in with you more frequently if there is some additional support needed? Yeah, you know, and it, it varies in terms of the, the, the follow-up recommendation. You know, there are definitely families of very young kids who I'll see again just in a couple of months. And I'll encourage families to just reach out in between visits as well. Um, you know, as I tell parents, your your first question is probably going to be, you know, <laughs> in your head as you drive out of the parking ramp and you realize, oh, I didn't ask this. I let families know, you know, they should, um, you know, I will be expecting to hear from them, um, you know, probably several times, uh, even between visits as they as they start to connect with you know, interventions as they start to just wrap their heads around the diagnosis. The, uh, the most important part 
of the visit is actually not the visit. <laughs> it's actually what happens after the visit um, in terms, you know, and if I've done my job, you know, the families do walk away feeling um, that they've truly been heard, you know, their concerns have been heard, that I've gotten a chance to get to know their child, you know, it's not rushed, I see the child's strengths. And, you know, having that level of understanding, my hope is that families will feel, you know, confident that, um, or at least have some additional knowledge that they can, they can move forward and, and that they know the types of supports and services that are going to help their child. Um, but I'm happy to, to help, you know, weigh in further uh, as they actually try to navigate uh, those, those intervention systems and those services. And I love when we worked together in Lend, you were so clear with parents about the importance of that, that staying in contact and getting those questions answered. Do you have any advice for parents that may not have a provider that is that open to that kind of support or that kind of conversation? And maybe some suggestions of how other parents you have worked with um, have navigated that process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that is really hard because, you know, there are some providers that really encourage that or that see that families get stuck and then they, they have no one to call. Um, you know, that's a hard question that doesn't have a, a perfect answer. I, I mean, the perfect answer would be, you know, find someone who does that. <laughs> um, but I do realize that there is a, a shortage in, in providers. Um, I would also say finding a primary care provider that offers care coordination services would also be another, another way to, um, to try to navigate those questions that are invariably going to come up. I was just going to jump in and say, I really like Robin, that you tell families you expect to hear from them because it, when we come to such a more of a specialist appointment or a very, you know, um, infrequent person that we see, the more like it feels all built up into one thing. And then, but then you saying what you expect of the parents is helpful because then we're probably going to make that a priority and not dismiss that, oh, we should loop back. And um, not shove away our questions and wonder where else we should put them and things like that. Yeah, um, you know, and I do, I have had families kind of store up all those questions and then they come in with this really, really long list and there's this pressure. You know, I had one mother kind of burst into tears when I said, it's okay, you know, if you don't think of every single thing, you know, that you need to ask during this visit, you can just call me, I will respond, um, you know, and, and autism just doesn't go away between visits. And I'll also tell families, you know, if I don't know an answer to a question, I can usually figure out who to ask. Uh, so there are no, you know, stupid questions, um, just ask. So how do you offer input to families, like looking for different therapies, and supports to what they should prioritize, especially in this time when waiting lists are longer than ever. Yeah, you know, the, the, the recommendations are really so tailored to the particular child, to the particular family. And I do try to help families you know, prioritize what, you know, for them, you know, are the, are the biggest things that they, they want to target as part of intervention. 
you know, the, the, the pieces that maybe are most impacting um, the child or, or, or the family, I would say, I would say get prioritized. I think, you know, that, that at least in our clinic, families will come away with um, probably more interventions than is feasible for the family. So we also talk about, um, you know, picking one or picking two, uh, just depending on their, you know, a, like time, how far away different agencies are, you know, how helpful the different services are, and really encourage families to do that prioritization and not try to do every single thing at once. But I want them to have enough idea of the types of supports and services that are available, so that if there is improvement in one area, or if they're discharged, you know, from speech, you know, what is something else that they could do? if they're feeling that there is time and space in their world to, to, to now add an additional intervention. I just got to ask a follow-up question to um, the fact that, you know, parents in the early days and even later in the journey can get so focused on the interventions, they kind of lose track of where's the time for the kid to be a kid. And what kind mm -hmm. of advice do you give parents about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely made the recommendation to back off sometimes for, uh, you know, on interventions for those families who are trying to get to four or five visits a week, it's too much. And there, you know, there's a point where, you know, just getting to that appointment negates, you know, all the benefit that they're receiving from, from that intervention. Um, so it's really about giving parents permission to prioritize and what is really, really bringing something to their child, to their family, and what are the things that they might, you know, be able to back off on uh, right now? It doesn't mean they, you know, they, they wouldn't revisit that later, but um, you're right. They, they absolutely need time to, for a kid to be a kid as well. And they learn and grow that way as well. Yeah, I think for me, it was always like the supposed to's. And I assumed that the, the most supposed to's, the things we should be doing, I felt like I needed to check in with somebody on that. So we're doing this and that. And, and it started to become like just showing up and rushing around to things because I felt like we should. And I forgot to go all the way back to the why, which is connected to what we're seeing in my child. For him, it was OT and sensory, like he was all over the place and like sometimes pretty disorganized and crashing into things. And so we really needed that, that help. And so um, to, to just prioritize that instead of, okay, we conquered that thing. Now let's go after that, you know, and it just becomes, you, you remove yourself from being present in your family and with your, and looking at your kids. So when you, when you help families prioritize, you know, at the very beginning, say they just got their diagnosis from you. And is that a lot of based on the assessment that you see, or do, do, do you really ask an open-ended question to parents? Like, what do you think is most important? What's mm -hmm. the level of your guidance there? Mm -hmm. I think it's very family dependent. Again, um, you know, definitely as part of the assessment, we want to recognize a child's strengths, a family's strengths, you know, the child's learning style, um, and then really try to connect that with the, the types of services that would be a good fit for the child's needs and the family's needs. 
you know, so sometimes that is more intensive, um, you know, when the needs are very high. Um, and other times it really is around more facilitation of, you know, different opportunities for the child, different social opportunities. Well, yeah, that really gets back to, um, I was asking how much guidance you have. And, and you said, and it really is looking back at the kids' strengths and the family's strengths and assets. And, and I, I know at the very beginning of talking about doing this podcast, one of the things that your name came up in talking to a parent who had some, she really knew what she wanted for her child in terms of social engagement opportunities and what she felt like he needed to grow and, and build some of his social um, interaction skills. And, and she credited you in, in the evaluation process saying, you know, she really described what would be helpful and what would be like pulling him along in his social development and what would be, you know, not a, not as good of a fit. So anyway, I thought that was really cool to find a parent so early on in the process who was so aware of the why for what she was seeking and the, and the what of what she was hoping for her child. So any suggestions that you give to families coming into the first time about how to recreate that maybe now in, in person? Telehealth has opened up some additional options for even our in-person evaluations. So, you know, there are definitely um, opportunities to do, a, you know, part of the assessment over telehealth. Uh, I've been I've been really capitalizing on that with the little kids who maybe can't tolerate a two hour parent interview. So, you know, I'll see the child in clinic, um, you know, really get to know them for, uh, you know, an hour or so. Uh, and then the family will head home uh, and and I'll do the the parent interview and, and get a little slice as well, uh, you know, of the of the home environment. But um. I love that and never thought of it until you just said, because still for my daughter, who's 15, every assessment, every program, anytime that there was a, a parent conversation, probably more than five minutes, she would be like, no, thank you. And to have that option to do it outside of the clinic and on telehealth where you can talk and then she can do her own thing would have been a game changer in our early days. Yep, I'm probably doing that. I, I, I do three comprehensive evaluations a week, and I would say at least once a week, uh, where you know taking a break and reconvening over over telehealth. It's just one of my one of my things is I don't want it to feel rushed. You know, I want to have the time to address all the you know the questions or you know just anything that the parent wants to wants to share or bring up um, the entire day devoted to one family so that we don't have that rushed feeling, you know, and that families walk away with what they need. And if telehealth is the way to do that, that's great. What are um, some things for parents that you may offer in conversations, Robin? I would say, I, I would say generally, that parenting is kind of messy. Um, and, you know, we all go through time a parent as well. Uh, and actually that was one of the best things clinically that probably ever, that was the best clinical training I, I've had, you know, in terms of giving parents really permission to try different things. Some of them are going to work. Some of them aren't, but as you were saying, if you 
you know, live your life only for your child and your, you know, your only, only focus is getting to different therapies and doing all these different interventions. Um, it really can take a toll on your life balance, parents, mental health. Uh, and so, you know, that piece of things, you know, when I do see families and I don't make, maybe I should honestly make a, you know, a recommendation around this that every time um, I do tend to think a bit more when I see these very, very, very driven families who maybe do need to take a little bit, I feel slightly more balanced. I will say that I've, I've been doing this now for almost 20 years and I've definitely learn, you know, each time sometimes think about Stuart Smalley. Um, <laughs> when I walk away from an evaluation that I feel like could have gone better, um, you know, and, and it's, it's really taking, you know, what I feel maybe I could have done better and apply it to the next, to the next family when it's appropriate to do so. Um, and it really, really does coming, come down to, to listening you know, more than, more than anything else. Um, if I, if I have a family who, you know, is already feeling very, very overwhelmed, my recommendations are going to be different, you know, for that family than it would be for, for, for someone who, who maybe has, you know, a little bit more, who's, who's slightly less stressed or who, who maybe, I don't know, that's more really important. Well, <laughs> more resources at the moment. And like, you can see when there's a lack of sort of whether it's emotional, financial, logistical resources, like if a family is showing signs of not having the resources, you don't want to add to the stress factor and, and build expectations or make recommendations that are off the mark for them. Yep. And the recommendations are going to be around, you know, getting some additional supports to the family, um, trying to take things off of their plate, get connected with either social services or, you know, some other, some other resources in that respect um, that can help them navigate that piece. I might sound like a broken record because I'm, I'm the one that's on the podcast the most, but I still remember two things in my little journey was our pediatrician who said, before you choose any sub therapies or supports, think about your economic, emotional, like logistic time, energy, family, cohesiveness, like think about all the resources that you have and if it fits. Not wanting families to be overstretched and, and kind of fall flat on their faces in, into the appointment or, and then the other piece was, was one of our autism specialists was like, you need to stop reading. You need to stop gathering resources and pursuing, you know, and like, so some of those like I think what was striking about those is A, they were spot on at the time for me and B, they were not what I expected to hear from the experts and the people who, who should tell me how to fix this, which was the, not the appropriate mentality now that I see in, in retrospect, but that, that a, a clinician or somebody might care for me <laughs> instead of only focus on my kid, which is all I wanted to do at the time. So just that shifted, shifted approach to the family system and to the parent well-being struck me and stuck with me. So, and that is something I've, I've, that changed 
for me over time, you know, in terms of being um, kind of a young, you know, 20 something, it was very different. I think how I, how I approached, how I approached families and, and tended to give many, many, many more recommendations and not give that permission. And that is one thing, you know, that I've, that, that parenting changed for me was like, are you kidding? You know, what, what are you thinking? Making, you know, all these recommendations, it's not manageable for families. So in that respect, it was helpful. One question, and I think it's happened in some of what I observed when I observed you Robbins, but like, I remember this moment, like right after I got a, Olivia's initial diagnosis and it was a very painful, horrible process where people didn't really see Olivia, they saw her as like a number or, or just there's this one way that works and it's the only way. And afterwards, a friend advised me to don't go on the internet, don't try to solve it, just take her out and do something fun. And I took her to this indoor playground and I just watched her do her own unique thing. And I kept asking myself over and over, what has this changed for me? I didn't feel like I was grieving. I felt like now that I had that information, like instead of believing I was a terrible parent, I had kind of a, a path forward and some ideas of ways to start to help connect with Olivia in a better way and help her navigate the world in a better way. But I just watched her playing and playing and playing and playing and just laughing and having fun. And I realized what was and still is the hardest part for me on this journey is that there are still so many people in the world practitioners and and families and friends and and community members and teachers that just don't see the magic of not only my sweet girl but of so many kiddos and that's the thing that i struggle with most and i'm always as i meet parents starting the journey i see that that is a common struggle and just kind of advice for maybe some parent support groups or or places to kind of be in community with people that understand this unique journey and do see these beautiful humans for not something to be fixed but just a kid a parent near a kid and a parent it's simple universal but just some extra spice to this journey you know, there are some support groups um, through the Autism Society of Minnesota. Um, some school districts have support groups. You know, families uh, can participate in, you know, some, some intervention groups for their children. And there's kind of a parent component and a processing component for that. We have, for older kids, we have a peers group through our, through our clinic. We have a facing your fears for kids who have some, some anxiety and, you know, and there's a parent participation component to that as well. There's a resource too. Through Explore Minnesota, there's Minnesota attractions that cater to kids with autism. It's also, you know, I mean, opportunities don't always have to have that autism lens. You know what I mean, too? So, so we don't necessarily, you know, want to funnel kids and families to only, you know, other families with autism as well. They're definitely... Um, play groups, early childhood family ed opportunities where, you know, they, these are 
fun, safe opportunities for kids and families to socialize. And it's not, again, all families with, with kids with autism. That is such good advice because it is a reminder that when I have a balance of that, like my, you know, autism community parents, and then just, I remember ECFE was a really positive experience for Olivia. In fact, she's still friends with the kiddo from the early days. And that parent who was a neurotypical parent and a neurotypical kiddo really were a special connection for us to make us not feel so alone and isolated in the world. So that's an awesome recommendation. And, yeah, and kids are first and foremost kids, you know, they're not their that diagnosis. The diagnosis doesn't change who they are as a child. Um, it may help you kind of understand maybe some of their, their strengths and needs a little bit better, but it doesn't change who they are as a kid. Thanks again for listening to the Oxygen Mask podcast. Be well. So we invite you to carry some of what you heard today into your day-to-day. Did you find kernels of joy or reassurance? Where did you feel some resistance? Let us know so we can learn and grow together. You can comment and subscribe to the podcast at Communities Engaging Autism's website, www.ceaforautism.org. Share the podcast with members of your village to strengthen those essential connections. And above all, Please secure your own oxygen mask before helping others.